0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Jane Landers, author of the books Atlantic Creoles and the Age of Revolutions, and Black Society in Spanish Florida.
1: This history is U.S. history eventually, and I hope that people will begin to take more interest in it and realize how long we've been Hispanic.
0: We'll discuss how tick fever affected Florida's cattle industry in the 20th century. So what happened in around
2: 1906, uh, the federal government decided to initiate a massive eradication program uh, throughout the South.
0: And we'll look at St. John's clay pots with archaeologist Jerry Milanich. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Dr. Jane Landers is professor of history at Vanderbilt University and one of the most respected historians focusing on Florida history. She is author of the award-winning books Black Society in Spanish Colonial Florida and most recently Atlantic Creoles and the Age of Revolutions. Dr. Landers was guest speaker for the second annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture presented by the Florida Historical Quarterly and the University of Central Florida History Department. Dr. Landers says that people are often surprised to learn that all of the Spanish ships that came to Florida in the 15th and 16th centuries not only had people of African descent on board, many of them were free.
1: On all of our expeditions, there were people who were both free and enslaved. And it, you know, as you go back in time and look at the history of Spain, you are not surprised, but we don't really often do that. Um, but Spaniards had had African-descended people, Africans in, in their ships, on land, all through the southern cities, Portugal the same. And so, uh, and in rather, uh, depressed conditions, uh, not all, but most had sort of limited opportunities, and when ships took off for the New World, it's not surprising they jumped aboard.
0: Slavery, by definition, is not an acceptable state for human beings, but there were varying degrees of treatment for slaves in the colonial era. Landers points out that people of African descent who were slaves were treated better under the Spanish than the British colonists.
1: That's right, and that's a really hard lesson to get across because you risk sounding like some sort of an apologist for slavery, but it's because it was a medieval global system at the time that Spain first uh, incorporated slavery into their system, and it was based on Roman law, which made uh, slavery was an accident of fate. Basically, you were not killed on a battlefield. You were so in debt that you sold yourself into slavery, Uh, You might have been somebody committed to permanent slavery for crimes, Uh, but it wasn't race-based, so that white Spaniards were also slaves, so were Gypsies and Jews and eventually Indians and Muslims, and everybody that they encountered might be enslaved. Um, And then when we get to the New World and plantations get going, uh, there's pretty much a dual system, so that slavery always coexisted, with freedom. Uh, it was not race-based, though. And once you develop plantations, you need a big captive labor force. And uh, that's when they start to incorporate uh, West African patterns of sugar and slaves. And things change a little bit. But in the urban settings, there was still plenty of opportunities for freedom way all into the 19th century
0: as british colonies were established along the east coast of north america the spanish created conditions that encouraged british slaves to escape to spanish-controlled florida
1: the english system was a later system and it was developed as chattel slavery so it was uh, uh, property rights trumped any others and uh, slaves were never considered human beings there was no consideration of their family units, um, no attempt to incorporate them into churches in the early periods, Uh, and so that surely anybody who could would run from that sort of a brutal system, especially when uh, real hard extractive labor was required in sugar or in indigo or rice, and um, so yes, you would definitely try to get away from there and try for an urban setting if you could, and eventually... um, Spain develops a policy of offering sanctuary to runaways from Protestant colonies who will at least on the surface become Catholic.
0: In her book, Atlantic Creoles and the Age of Revolutions, Jane Landers looks at the lives of people of African descent in the 18th and 19th centuries, challenging the misconception that blacks of this period were all slaves.
1: Yeah, you know, it's just really hard to go against the, the, the grain. And I always say the, the U.S. media, in particular in the British as well, are so powerful and they do such a good job with movies like 12 years a slave or that, uh, and also the powerful imagery from the Civil War period and abolitionist literature and so on. It makes you think that was the only life someone of a, Black skin color might have, but um, because of the old medieval transplant from the old world to the new, that wasn 't true in in Spanish areas um, and it 's just really hard to overcome those powerful images and to think instead of somebody dressed in a military uniform or owning a plantation of their own owning slaves of their own, which happens um, it's so I try to find any images I can that might dispel the more powerful and and more numerous images that we have from the antebellum period especially of the south. Colonial
0: era black soldiers could be found at Fort Mose, just north of St. Augustine, Jane Landers has been instrumental in educating the public about the existence of Fort Mose since the 1990s and her research continues today.
1: Well, I just lucked into the wonderful fortune of Florida history because when I went to the university, at first I was going to be a st- I was going to study Brazil and slavery in Brazil, big country and so on. And I had the fortune to find some wonderful documents in collections that the P.K. Young Library of Florida History had been gathering for 20 years all over the Caribbean. And to run into Dr. Kathleen Deegan, who became a mentor and served on my committee, she sent me to, to Spain to track this Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose, which is more commonly just said, Fort Mosey Um, and I tracked everything I could find about it following in the footsteps of some wonderful older historians like Irene Wright and uh, found a lot more and brought all that material back and then the Black Caucus of the Florida Legislature gave us some money to do two seasons of digs We just kept building on all of that, and eventually we got uh, a National Historic Landmark for the place, and eventually we got the property, and eventually we got a museum, which I hope everybody will go see if they go to St. Augustine. Uh, I've worked it into fourth-grade Florida history textbooks and college-level textbooks, and um, they just have a wonderful little museum there with a film that explains a lot of the history uh, the community has taken it up and reenact the roles and battles of Oglethorpe coming and invading and so on. Children visit that I always love to see the children's art. Uh, and it was wonderful, fun and experience to get to help work out the museum exhibit too, to design the text and think about the objects that would tell the story. Um, and it's just been wonderful. So I, I, I started that more than 20 years ago now, and I still don't give it up. And I'm now trying to write a biography of uh, Francisco Menendez, who becomes the leader of the community, uh, and fill in the biography uh, that I don't have as rich in the African side, the Yamasee Indian War in Carolina, and his Cuban exodus. So those are the pieces I'm working on now.
0: For the Gerald Schaffner Lecture at the University of Central Florida, Jane Landers discussed the topic, Florida Corsairs and the 18th Century Atlantic World, looking at Florida's role in connecting this region with others.
1: The 18th century ends up being almost a century of war between Spain and England, and Spain is hard-pressed all over its large possessions to hold on against a powerful British Navy that's growing. The fact that Great Britain has grabbed different uh, territorial chunks away from the Spanish in the Caribbean and it leaves Florida much more v- vulnerable but also it's in the heart of things if you look at a map and it sticks out like a, a digit of some sort into the Caribbean and so it's it's a very strategic location and whereas it used to be strategic for silver fleets going by it becomes strategic as a long coastline that's hard to de- to defend
0: While doing research outside of the United States, Landers has participated in what some have labeled guerrilla preservation through the digitization of historic documents.
1: Well, uh, you know, working 20-some years ago in the great records of the Florida Library, I I worked a lot in the St. Augustine Catholic Church records, uh, which date to the 16th century. They're the oldest in what is today the United States. Um, And I worked in microfilm that was quite blackened and very difficult to work in. And I always wanted to um, get it digitalized, but it gave me the idea that uh, maybe we needed to do something about preserving those. And I also, as a grad student, had the good fortune to work with Dr. Michael Gannon, Dr. Eugene Lyon, and to go to Cuba with them. And they were always interested in tracking the Floridians who went to Cuba, but by that They were primarily interested in the Spanish Floridians. And uh, eventually, when I got a job of my own, (laughs) I applied for a grant and got some to take Eugene and his daughter and some other people down. We did a little sample of microfilm in Cuba on the black and Indian records, which nobody had done. And we did samples in nine colonial churches. And we showed we could get in there and come out and have it, even though it was the special period and it wasn't very easy work with a microfilm. Uh, but later we got into the digital era, and that really simplified things. I started getting more grants, and so now we've preserved these records over uh, Cuba in Havana, Ceiba Mocha in Matanzas, and Matanzas also, Colombia in three locations, and Brazil in several locations now. Um, and then finally we did get to digitalize the St. Augustine records, and they date to the 16th century, as I said, and show a very interesting and diverse and integrated community.
0: While preserving historic documents themselves is sometimes problematic, Landers is actively preserving the information they contain.
1: I wish I could, you know, preserve the paper as well, Uh, but I'm not a trained conservationist, and uh, the finances of that would be impossible. And so some of the records that I first did in Cuba no longer are there, but the digital image is on the web, free for everybody to look at, at Vanderbilt University's site, and I feel like it's saving it. That's one good thing, but it's also democratizing the knowledge because people who can't afford to travel to those places can still do research in them, and I hope they will.
0: As an expert on black society in Spanish colonial Florida, Jane Landers is pleased to see increasing awareness about the important role that blacks and Hispanics have played in the development of America.
1: If you think about the demographics of our country as well, it's Hispanic half the, from the you know ocean to ocean and half of the country and all the way up into the Illinois country and everywhere else. So this history is U.S. history eventually, and I hope that people will begin to take more interest in it and realize how long we've been Hispanic.
0: Dr. Jane Landers is Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. Her most recent book is Atlantic Creoles in the Age of Revolutions. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Cattle industry has always been a significant part of Florida's economy. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, tick fever affected the cattle industry in Florida in the early 20th century.
2: Yeah, that's right. And when we talk about tick fever, we're talking uh, about a a particular disease. It's actually a parasite that infects cattle uh, and uh, is oftentimes fatal for cattle. Um, And it's uh, carried by a particular species of tick that uh, uh, generally would be harmless to the cattle. But when it carries that parasite, uh, it can infect an entire herd. Uh, can actually kill up to ninety percent of an entire herd so it can be extremely devastating and really was devastating for a number of uh, large uh, herds of cattle in florida in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So what happened in around 1906, uh, the federal government decided to initiate a massive eradication program uh, throughout the South. What's also kind of interesting to note about this particular, uh, this particular parasite is that it only occurs in warmer climates. So it really only affected uh, large cattle herds in the South. Uh, So there was this demarcation line that was very close to the Mason-Dixon line (laughs) during the American Civil War that really separated uh, farmers in the north and farmers in the south. So this uh, national mobilization was focused really only in the southern states, and Florida, of course, being one of those states. Uh, So this tick really... or the parasite and the tick, would thrive in these warmer southern climates. So it became a, uh, a massive uh, uh, mobilization effort uh, throughout
0: Florida and throughout the South. This was a really big deal here, too, because the cattle industry was so significant to Florida's economy. That's right. I mean, even going back to early
2: Spanish colonial times, the cattle industry has been extremely important to Florida's uh, agricultural industry. Uh, and many of Florida's early settlers were involved in at least some capacity in uh, raising, herding, and uh, working in, in uh, cattle in some fashion. So when you had a, a parasite like this attacking entire herds, it could be extremely devastating. And then uh, a person's entire fortune, you know, uh, was amassed in the livestock and when you lost livestock within a matter of days because oftentimes when a uh, cow was infected, they would die within two weeks um, and could, again, infect the entire herd, and, and one's uh, whole you know, life savings could be lost because of this one tiny little parasite. Now, you have a document
0: here about tick fever that was issued by the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
2: Yeah, that's right. What we're staring at is a small pamphlet, really, uh, entitled Tick Fever, uh, Farmer's Bulletin number one six two five. You know, this is a very, uh, <laughs> You know, federal document if I've ever seen one, Uh, but essentially it outlines uh, what tick fever is, what we've been talking about, how to identify whether or not your cows uh, are infected with this particular disease, um, and also how to differentiate between ticks that don't carry uh, this particular disease um, and those that do. And you'll see here we have a photograph of a number of cows that are being uh, guided through what looks like a a concrete bath, really, and this is called a cattle dipping vat. Uh, These were constructed uh, by the federal government throughout Florida uh, over the course of the early 20th century, and that's essentially what it is. It's a large, submerged, concrete uh, bath that would have been filled with uh, chemicals, mainly arsenic, that was— uh harmless to the cattle but would kill the ticks that were on the cattle so they used to uh have to round up cattle and, and guide them through these uh through these small concrete chutes and then guide them back out and a lot of the early accounts that we've heard of, of people who were involved in this process it was uh, very very difficult to get the cows into the vats they didn't like it it was hard to get them all through and it was hard to find the cattle You know, because Florida didn't have fence laws uh, in the early 20th century. So these early cow hunters literally had to go hunt cows. They had to go out into the scrubs and and find where the uh, semi-feral cattle were were, uh, moving about through uh, through the brush.
0: Now, as you've been talking about, there was this huge eradication effort aimed at wiping out tick fever in the first half of the 20th century, which sounds like a good thing, but this effort was not without some dissension among the cowmen.
2: Yeah, that's right. When you look at this problem, it's really very complex, and there are a lot of dimensions, and and you really have to look at it from everyone's viewpoint. Like you said, from the viewpoint of the federal government from washington dc what they were doing was a good thing and they felt that well anybody with a a rational mind would feel the same way right and would be uh, wholeheartedly involved in helping them do this the problem was and this is um, uh, certainly the case in florida is that a number of these farmers who were working in these early cow hunters were not large wealthy landowners they were what we call yeoman farmers uh, which is kind of a general term but um, it, uh, generally speaking, could be defined as someone who uh, does not own land, uh, oftentimes is just a subsistence farmer. So they had very small land holdings, uh, probably had a small homestead, uh, and were really uh, working these cattle just for survival. So they may have had, you know, a dozen or less um, head of cattle and cattle. What happens with a lot of the Florida cattle, if there are uh, many of them that are infected with this uh, particular um, uh, parasite, they can actually become immune to it. So if they survive the disease, they become immune and pass that immunity on. So there were these small subsistence farmers who really didn't need to have their cattle dipped. Uh, so they had no interest in being told by the federal government uh, to travel out into the, the cow country for really no compensation, herd up these cattle, Force them into the vats, uh, and then uh, you know eradicate the uh, eradicate the ticks. Because to to a lot of these uh, again poor subsistence farmers, there was no uh, there was no incentive. They were not being compensated for it. Um, and there are a number of instances uh, that resulted in, in violent altercations. You know when uh, federal officials would come down and often confiscate infected cows. Um, and then when the farmer would come along and, and find out his cow was taken away and would not be given back and he wouldn't be compensated, again, it, it often ended, ended violently. Hmm. Well,
0: interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in
3: Cocoa.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Jerry Milanich is on the advisory board of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com discusses St. John's clay pots with archaeologist Jerry Milanich.
4: Somewhere between about 1,000 and 500 B.C., we have enough information on the pre-Columbian peoples all over Florida to divide them up into archaeological cultures. One is the St. John's culture that lasts Oh, from, you know, 1,000 a, a B.C. on up into the colonial period. Of, and uh, a whole constellation of archaeological traits helped to define a culture. One of the things that we uh, use most commonly are fired clay ceramics. Different groups made different kinds of fired clay pottery.
5: That was Dr. Gerald Milanich, Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida. I spoke to him about the native people who comprised the St. John's culture and the clay pots they made. They lived in and around the St. John's River before the age of European contact. Here, Dr. Melanich tells me about how some of their pottery was made.
4: We start getting fired clay pottery in the St. John's area about 4,000 years ago, and the earliest... Uh, pottery, we, we have to give it a name to, so we call it Orange Pottery, named for Orange Creek that's on the St. John's River up near uh, Palatka. And that earliest pottery is actually uh, to strengthen the clay walls of the vessels. They would uh, put temper, uh, just like a modern ceramicist would do, but they would put uh, palmetto fibers from palmetto fronds, uh, also Spanish moths, and when the clay is, is, when the pots are fired that organic material often just burns out and leaves little holes so when you find this early orange period, orange ceramics that has this, it's very light because it has all the holes in it and uh, the fibers are burnt out of a lot of it.
5: The reason this pottery is so distinct to specific groups of indigenous people was due to the designs found on the pottery. Dr. Melanesh explains about how some of the designs were formed into these vessels.
4: The Indians began to decorate pottery with a check stamp design. They would carve wooden paddles with a check design and then use those paddles to, you know, hit the sides of the unfired or rub them, push, impress them into the sides of the unfired clay pots and that left this waffle-like design on the pots, and then they would fire them. And so we have what we call St. John's check Stamp Pottery. It's very distinctive, uh, usually dates after about AD 700. And we think the reason they did that is it might uh, help the pot, because it increases the surface area, it helps the pot to fire better, uh, increases conductivity when you're cooking something over a fire, And so we find St. John's pottery bowls, little bitty things that look like something you'd eat your breakfast cereal from. And then some are much larger, looks like something you'd stick over a fire to uh, boil your uh, nut soup with uh, some corn in it or something like that.
5: Although these clay pots had a utilitarian function for the purpose of cooking, Dr. Milanich reminds us that some vessels that were found were used for purely ceremonial purposes.
4: Just like we do today, the Indians had specific ceramic vessels to be used in specific circumstances. And so when we begin to understand this, we can see, for instance, that in mounds, uh, the people used certain kinds of uh, uh, pottery vessels sometimes that were animal effigies, owls and, and other animals, to drink sacred teas like the black drink. Uh, which is made from a wild holly in Florida that contains uh, caffeine. And because these vessels were sacred and important, under certain circumstances you might then bury them or put them, take them out of circulation and put them in a space where, you know because they were such powerful vessels, they wouldn't bother ordinary people. So you would take them and put them, for instance, in a mound. So when we excavate a mound like that, what we would call a burial mound, essentially what we're finding is a, uh, the remains of a funeral, of a funeral ceremony. And so we see these uh, objects and the people that were uh, important within that, that funeral ceremony preserved uh, a moment in time, if you would, in that mound.
5: I interviewed Dr. Gerald Milanich and others for the podcast series A History of Central Florida look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Gerald Milanich, and I'm Robert Casanella with
0: Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can be part of the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.